0: Hello everybody, and welcome to our podcast mini-series from the CRISPR Journal, sponsored by Taconic, Essentials of CRISPR-based animal models in drug discovery. In today's third and final episode of the series, what is so different about CRISPR founder breeding? Hi everyone, I'm Kevin Davis, the executive editor of the CRISPR Journal and the author of the new book, Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution and the New Era of Genome editing. We have been partnering with Taconic to bring you this three-part podcast series exploring topics around animal models, genome editing, IP and licensing questions, hopefully to impart some valuable and actionable information and insights to help you successfully perform genome editing experiments in animal models. We're wrapping up the series uh, with this episode and uh, on the topic of what is so different about CRISPR founder breeding. I'm joined by two guests from Taconic. Gretchen Kuzek, who is Associate Director of Scientific Services with the company, and Bart Smits, Senior Manager of Genetic Sciences and Compliance at Taconic. Gretchen, Bart, hello, welcome.
1: Hello. Hello, thank you.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. Before we dive into some some of the the, the key questions around this subject, I wonder if you could both um, just introduce yourselves and give us a sense of your scientific background and your your current role and responsibilities at Deconic. Gretchen, why don't we start with you?
2: Sure. Yeah, I have a PhD in molecular genetics from the State University of New York at Albany. Um, I spent time there working with the late mouse geneticist, Dr. Lorraine Flaherty, Um, where we were mapping quantitative trait loci. So a lot of time spent there with animal breeding and animal models and the classical genetics. I then went on to do a postdoc with Dr. Sally Temple with neural stem cell research, where I looked at asymmetric cell division in the brain. And then from there, Taconic was kind of close by and I was looking for that next step. And I kind of fell into a great position there as a scientific program manager where at that, at that position, I work closely with investigators from multiple different types of companies to help plan their breeding projects and move their projects and get them the cohorts that they need for their research. Um, and then, so I've been at Taconic now for eight years where I'm currently running the strategy design group where we design all of the breeding strategies for the customer projects as part of our scientific services portfolio.
0: And how much of your time is spent working with CRISPR as the gene editing tool versus other forms of gene targeting
2: yeah i mean i maybe about half of that now um it's definitely a lot more common in the projects since i want to say like 2017 and 2018 they really started picking up and we you know some of these things we anticipated and some of these things that we're finding with the complications of breeding these models, you know, surprise us that that that's why we want to plan for that during the breeding projects that we design today.
0: Great. And Bart, tell us a little bit about your scientific journey to Taconic.
1: Yeah, so I have a, a PhD from the Netherlands, from the Hubrecht Institute of Developmental Biology and Stem Cell Research. Uh, and already during my PhD, I was interested in, uh, in generating uh, novel animal models, especially in the rat, because that wasn't possible before uh you know using the traditional technologies that were available for mouse so then i did my uh, my postdoc at the university of wisconsin uh, uh, with uh, michael gold and and there we really pioneered uh, generating uh, model ana organisms especially for the rat as well and uh, later on when i established my own laboratory at the medical university of south carolina i adopted the crispr technology to make rat mutants Mm. Uh, and that's where i came into contact with crispr for the first time mm. um and then i transitioned into uh taconic uh into the department of genetics and uh, sciences and compliance and um uh, my knowledge of the crispr system is now uh, uh, coming in handy uh, to perform this duty
0: that's that's great okay well let's dive into uh the the subject for today um when using crispr in zygotes to generate an animal model the initial animals are referred to as founders, they're genetic mosaics. Why, what does this mean? Why is this important? Why, is, why, should this, why do we need to consider this subject?
1: The development of the CRISPR gene editing system has really revolutionized the generation of animal models. Uh, CRISPR is now the dominant method uh, for making gene knockout models in laboratory mouse and rats. And it's also gaining momentum as one of the dominant methods for making knock-in modifications and conditional gene targeting. Uh, this allows researchers to really generate models for human health and disease at a much reduced time frame than, than previously possible, especially when injected into uh, directly into a one cell embryo or a zygote. Uh, CRISPR gene editing can result in genetically modified mouse models Within three to four weeks, which is much faster than compared to the traditional methods of using uh, embryonic stem cells or ES cells. Now, um, this e- incredible efficiency it comes at a cost of lower accuracy, which must be considered when using this technology to develop genetically engineered uh, animal models. For example, uh, mosaicism occurs very frequently when when CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing reagents are applied by pronuclear injection into the zygote the founder animal that's produced from an injected zygote may actually be mosaic, and very often is mosaic. And uh, it happens because the gene editing process happened beyond the one cell stage of development, for example, in the two cell or in a four cell stage of embryogenesis. So a mosaic founder is then made up of cells with different genotypes. And these different mutations, they arise as a result of an imperfect DNA repair uh, f- following the in- induction of the double-stranded break by, by the Cas9 endonuclease. So uh, when a founder germline is then made up of cells with different genotypes, the resulting offspring from this founder um, uh, can show heterogeneity at the target locus. And while founder mosaicism is common is a common source of heterogeneous mutant F1 generation, uh, it should be noted that uh, due to the incredible targeting efficiency of CRISPR Cas9, a small percent of founders may actually be homozygous mutant, even, or even uh, compound heterozygous for two different mutations. So, this all uh, will lead to an F1 generation that has different types of mutations, uh, which is uh, different than in the traditional methods of
0: using, uh, of making uh, mouse knockout models. Great, how how does this differ from a chimera generated via targeting in embryonic stem cells to generate the model?
1: Yeah, so the the traditional method to uh, generate knockout models, which was developed in the 1980s, was using homologous recombination in embryonic stem cells or ES cells. Homologous recombination is actually is a precise genetic engineering technology, which means that the engineered mutation will usually uh, be exactly as designed. Uh, CRISPR-Cas9 can also be applied in ESLs, uh, which typically is used for more complex genetic engineering processes or projects as compared with CRISPR directly into a zygote. Um, the advantage of using ESLs is that the targeted ESL clones, they can undergo several verification steps to select a clone with the desired genetic integrity at the target locus uh, to move forward. Now, regardless of the engineering technique used, when a selected genetically engineered uh, ES cell from one strain is injected into and mixed, basically, with a developing embryo from another strain, from a wild type host strain, the resulting newborn consists of cells from two different strains uh, with two different genotypes. And it's usually even different coat colors, because that's the way we identify whether uh, the, the procedure worked. Now, such an animal is called a chimera. So, a chimeric mouse like a mosaic founder is also made up of cells with different genotypes but the difference with uh, that chimeric mouse has um, is that the different genotypes arose because the mouse is um, made up of cells from two different strains and not due to gene editing beyond the one cell stage of embryogenesis so when the modified es cells uh, contributed to the germline of the chimera its offspring positive for the modification will then uh, not have different genotypes at the target locus, because all the offspring derived from this correctly targeted ESL clone will be clonal and will have the same genetic modification. So basically, to summarize that, a zygotic microinjection of CRISPR-Cas9 reagents in the pronucleus, may result in a mosaic founder, which potentially can give rise to offspring with different mutations. Now, chimeric animal produced from a, a gene-edited ESL uh, will give rise to offspring with the same mutation. The scope of this podcast is obviously to provide the uh, breeding recommendations for projects starting with a mutant founder animal, which is generated by CRISPR-Cas9 in the zygote.
0: Very good, thank you, Bart. Um, at what stage of CRISPR model development and breeding should I, as a customer or researcher, be most concerned about off-target mutations?
2: I mean, most importantly, One would want to first focus on having the desired on-target mutation present in the founder animal, but we should also be aware of other potential for on-target and other off-target mutations, which can be identified through a thorough genetic characterization. These undesired on- and off-target mutations are a risk to occur due to the imperfect nature of the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system, as Bart has already discussed. So just to ensure that we're all on the same page, I'm going to define what we are referring to as on-target and off-target mutations. The on-target mutation is a mutation in the target gene of interest. Ideally, we want to create a desired on-target mutation, but there may also be mutations that can occur at the on-target site that are undesired. So an example of a non-desired on-target mutation could be if we are trying to induce a frame shift to result in a null allele, but if animals also carry an on-target mutation, in the, the DNA that does not create the desired frameshift, then this would be a non-desired or undesired on-target mutation. Off-target mutations are mutations that occur in genes or regions other than your desired gene of interest. Ideally, one should screen for and minimize the potential for off-target mutations upfront when possible. Upfront screening and prediction analysis for off-target should be carried out as part of the model generation process with the goal here to identify guide RNAs with the the lowest potential to target sites other than the desired genomic location. This is done in silico using specialized programs or algorithms developed to identify and rank the potential for the guide RNAs to target sequence other than the desired gene. So in cases where off-target mutations are predicted, especially if these sites are in other genes or conserved regions of the genome, then we would recommend analyzing these off-target sites in vivo at the appropriate stage during breeding. So what happens now, we've generated our model, we've done a prediction analysis, and we do expect that there's some potential for some off-target mutations to occur due to targeting in other genes or conserved regions. So when would we do this in vivo analysis? And we would not normally recommend off-target analysis in founder animals. And this is for a few reasons. First, it's best to confirm that the desired on-target modification and subsequent germline transition of the desired on-target modification occurs. If this desired on-target modification does not transmit to the next generation, then this is basically a waste of time and resources of doing this analysis in the founder animals. Secondly, the founder is a mosaic animal and you could have false negative results if you're screening for off-target results in somatic tissue of the founder animal. And I think finally and simply, off-target analysis is not necessary to select or eliminate a founder. The focus in the founder is to identify an animal that has the desired on-target mutation and move that to the next generation. If there are off-target modifications there, they can always be bred out further once they're identified. So then at this point, we identify the founder that we want and it's the F1 generation animals where we would recommend beginning the in vivo off-target analysis and screening these animals at this generation. Off target analysis should be carried out only after the desired on target mutation has been confirmed to be present by both PCR and sequencing in the F1 animals. The on target analysis is recommended in cases where we said the guide RNA may be likely to target other genes or conserved regions of the genome. And then the off target analysis should include PCR and direct sequencing of the PCR product in this F1 generation. And we would want to do this on any animals that may be used for study cohorts or animals that are gonna be used to move forward to establish the line. So we have a thorough genetic characterization of these animals and know what's going on genetically in our breeding colony. Um, so if we do identify off-target mutations in these F1 animals and we wanna establish a colony, then if, if we have a mix of F1 animals, cause that some may have off-target mutations and some may not, then we can select animals without the off-target mutations to move forward and establish the colony. But in other cases where we may only have F1 animals, that do harbor off-target mutations, then we want to screen for these in the next generation to assure that we can breed them out moving forward in the line.
1: Besides the off-target modifications, uh, which worries many people in, this, uh, in the research uh, arena as well, uh, the undesired on-target mutations may also be prob- problematic. You know, a considerable percentage of the CRISPR founders, they are mosaic, as we discussed before. Um, and and uh, they can transmit multiple alleles, including multiple versions of the on-target modification. So, um, and this is this is due to the imperfect nature of the repair after the double strand break. Now, to stabilize the inheritance of the desired allele, the mosaic founders must be bred with a commercial inbred or outbred strain of, of choice. And then the resulting F1s, they may be heterozygous for the desired allele, for an undesired mutant allele. Or they may appear wild type. Now, at this stage it's very important to perform a, con- a confirmation by sequencing of the desired mutant allele in positive F1 animals and this is essential to confirm that the mutant allele is indeed the desired mutant allele and no other variant allele is present at that point point. and then it's strongly recommended to really only continue with those confirmed heterozygotes and not breed with the undesired heterozygotes or even with the wild-type appearing animals. Because um, even the wild-type appearing animals, they may have undesired alleles that you cannot detect by a regular PCR genotyping because the primer sequence might be compromised uh, by the gene editing process. So if multiple untargeted alleles are being transmitted in the colony, uh th- this will cause issues with genotyping in subsequent generations especially when two presumable heterozygotes are crossed to generate homozygotes that can cause issues because a compound heterozygote might arise for the two mutant alleles and when two uh, when a compound heterozygote has an undesired mutant allele which was undetectable by the primers, as i as i mentioned before such an animal might actually appear as a homozygote but is not so that's a big problem uh, when multiple alleles are segregating in your colony. So to summarize, we when you establish a mutant animal line generated by CRISPR-Cas9 in the pronucleus of a, of a zygote, it is very important to confirm the presence of the desired on-target allele and to remove any animals that may have undesired mutations. Um, and it's also highly recommended to screen for potential off-targets uh, to eliminate those in
0: your F1 generation. Thank you, Bart. What are the most important aspects to consider when breeding animals using CRISPR in the context of mosaicism?
1: Yeah, so a, a typical pronuclear microinjection session may involve upwards of a hundred zygotes or, or more, and uh, with this great targeting efficiency, which is generally greater than fifty percent it is likely that a multitude of founder animals will be born from your from your uh, injection session. So there are a couple of uh, considerations as to which founder to select for breeding. So uh, usually a screening for positive founders, uh, you know, after the, the microinjection session, it involves a simple PCR reaction and some form of a gel electrophoresis to observe the band size. Now due to mosaicism and imprecise DNA repair, the analysis of the target site uh, in the founder DNA can show a wide variety of PCR banding patterns, which includes uh, a wild-type or mutant band of the wrong size, or, or just one band, just wild-type or just mutant, or more than two bands, basically, or a smear of DNA, which is indicative of mosaicism of the founder, or even no band at all, uh, when the PCR primer site is compromised on both alleles. This also um, happens once in a while so to increase the probability of transmitting just the desired mutant allele and not transmitting any of the undesired on target modifications it is then recommended to pick just those founders that show the mutant band of the desired size uh, accompanied by a wild type band of the expected size provided that the mutant and wild type alleles are different in size now if if availability of such founders is limited any founder with a mutant band of the desired size can be used. And as discussed previously, it is important to verify the mutant alleles uh, by sequencing in the founder and as well in the F1 generation. So it's strongly recommended to set up multiple founders for breeding at that point uh, with an animal from a commercial inbred or outbred strain, because not all founders may be fertile and not all founders may actually transmit the mutant allele. So uh, it's 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 wise to set up multiple founders for that purpose. And if the desired mutation is not X-linked, uh, males may actually be preferred over females because many more F1 offspring can be generated quicker with a male founder that can be jumped uh, uh, between different females uh, of the desired inbred or outbred strain.
2: And I think once the founder animals that you have identified and wish to move forward with in breeding. Um, you should definitely have a well-conceived breeding plan combined with a thorough genetic characterization of the offspring to establish the colony. So when we're talking about the founder breeding, it's strongly discouraged to intercross different founder animals with each other. This risks propagating mosaicism at the target site and also potential for mosaicism or fixing off-target mutations in the offspring. Furthermore, creation of compound heterozygotes with different mutant on-target alleles in the same line can lead to complications with future genotyping and analysis as Bart has discussed. If there are multiple founder animals that you do wish to utilize in breeding, then it's best practice that each founder animal be set up in breeding with the respective commercial inbred or outbred strain utilized to generate the model, but these should be maintained as separate lines or separate projects. And this is for similar reasons um, why we don't breed the founder animals together, because if we're breeding different founder animals within the same project, this also risks mosaicism and creating compound heterozygotes for the target allele, complicating the genotyping and the genetic integrity of the line moving forward. So if doing this, then you're breeding the the founder animal, the resulting F1 offspring should then be genetically characterized by PCR and sequencing to confirm transmission of the desired on-target mutation, along with off-target analysis prior to moving to that next round of breeding. So once we have confirmed in the F1 animals that the desired on-target mutation is present, and ideally we're lacking those off-target mutations that we don't want, then the F1 animals can be set up in breeding. And there's considerations at this stage, depending on the goals of the investigator, if it's speed and they want to generate some homozygous pilot cohorts, they may want to set up F1 animals, head by head. so F1 times het, F1 mating. And this can be done to generate those initial pilot cohorts of homozygous animals, but it's recommended that these offspring are not utilized to establish the ongoing production colony. And again, this is because we wanna minimize the risk of mosaicism within the colony. So it's best practice that lines should not be established from the F1 times F1 breeding, but if it's desired for an investigator to do so, then it really should be confirmed that all these animals are molecularly identical at the on-target and off-target sites where they are analyzed. Um, it's also recommended, if someone is going to breed F1 times F1 mating, that a single F1 animal should be set up, again, to that respective commercial inbred or outbred strain to generate N2 offspring. And therefore we've, we've crossed the founder animal to that commercial inbred strain or outbred strain. We've crossed the F1 animal to the commercial strain. And therefore we can feel more confident in establishing a genetically sound colony at the N2 generation or beyond. Um, so at this point, once we've generated N2 animals, Really, the genetic characterization at that stage, assuming we've done the thorough genetic characterization prior on the F0, the founders, and the F1s, then all we would need is PCR screening at this stage. And we could establish the colony from N2 times N2 matings. And if somebody wanted to be very conservative and truly maintain the genetic uh, integrity of the colony, they would continue to back cross the N2 animals and beyond to that commercial inbred or outbred strain to keep the colony continuously refreshed where they could source the heterozygous animals from those mating formats to a hep-by-hep mating format to generate their homozygous cohorts.
1: And so the only thing I would like to add is uh, the option of cryopreservation. Uh, cryopreservation is a, is a good way to preserve, for example, founders that were not selected to move forward. Uh, you know, Specific F1s from those founders can be cryopreserved. Um, and also the line that was selected to move forward uh, it, it can be cryopreserved at the end 2 stage, uh, just cryopreservation of uh, sperm uh, from
0: from some fertile males uh, would be sufficient to preserve the line uh, at that stage. Thank you both, great answers. Um, before we close, I want to uh, slip in a question about uh, multiplex editing. With the superior efficiency of CRISPR-Cas9 gene targeting, more and more researchers are interested in targeting multiple genes at the same time. Are there additional recommendations that you might have when performing multiplex genome editing in the same zygote?
1: That's definitely becoming more popular. And, you know, since CRISPR-Cas9 is extremely versatile and effective, um, some researchers may choose that to do that in the same zygote. And this is often successful, but the downside is that you know, more guide RNAs will have to be used and included in the injection mixture. And that may lead to the introduction of more on-target and off-target sequence diversity uh, than when the single gene would be targeted. So, as previously mentioned, that can result in genotyping problems because uh, uh, the wild type appearing animals may actually have incurred undesired mutations at one of the target sites and it's therefore necessary to select a double mutant founder to breed with a commercial inbred outbred strain of choice and uh, to select a subsequent double heterozygous f1 a mutant f1 uh, in order to eliminate the undesired hidden mutant alleles at, the, at either target site and that's because a double heterozygous f1 will at that stage have two mutant alleles from the founder and two wild type alleles from the commercial strain that you chose so at that stage it's safe to uh, to move forward. Of course, uh, there could be a complication when the two targeted genes are linked, which generally means they're they're located on the same chromosome in close genomic proximity. In that case, the mutant alleles in the founder would have to be in cis, which means that they have to be located on the same chromosome to be able to produce a uh, double heterozygote in the F1 generation. And as we discussed many times before, uh, the double heterozygous F1s will also have to undergo sequence verifications at their mutant alleles to ensure that the alleles are indeed of the desired version. Mm-hmm. So it's basically it's possible to do um, uh, the double targeting or, or multiple uh, uh, multiplex targeting, um, but it, it it will really uh, it comes at a price of, of inaccuracy as well, and uh, that the breeding will have to be reflected. Uh, um, to, uh, to eliminate those undesired uh, targeting events.
0: Well, this has been a very uh, rich uh, and educational uh, discussion. Uh, before we close, I'm just gonna uh, return to Gretchen and Bart and ask if they have any final thoughts, any concluding remarks or anything that we haven't touched on that you think needs to be brought out before we wrap up.
2: I think here, just to summarize, you know, when using the CRISPR-Cas9 system to edit the genome directly in zygotes, this definitely expedites the model generation process. But I think what people don't realize is the added complications that we have discussed here in the breeding and the genetic characterization that requires additional time and resources during these stages to best ensure the colony is genetically sound.
1: Yeah, the only thing I wanted to add is that, you know, researchers think that CRISPR can expedite things, but in the grander scheme of things, it's... uh, uh, you know, a lot of more quality checks need to be in place uh, to ensure genetic integrity. And we outline them, we uh, laid them out here in this particular po- uh, podcast for you.
0: Well, this has been an excellent discussion. And I want to uh, thank uh, both Gretchen Kusek, uh, Associate Director of Scientific Services, and Bart Smith, Senior Manager, Genetic Sciences and Compliance at Taconic, for sharing their insights and expertise with us. Thank you so much to both of you.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
2: Yes, thank you, Kevin.
0: And that pretty much does it for this three-part podcast series that we've brought to you uh, over the past few weeks on essentials of CRISPR-based animal models in drug discovery. Uh, I hope you'll agree with me that um, by listening to uh, uh, many experts uh, from the legions of great researchers at Taconic, you've appreciated some new insights about the various editing technologies, licensing factors, and breeding issues that must be taken into account to uh, perform uh, successful CRISPR and other gene targeting and gene editing experiments, in, uh, particularly in, in mouse and rat models. So it's been a fascinating discussion today and a fascinating series overall. I hope you've enjoyed it. I just want to thank Taconic for putting this together and for sponsoring the series, and all of my colleagues at the CRISPR Journal for uh, all the work behind the scenes in putting this together. So Hope you've enjoyed it for everybody at the CRISPR Journal. I'm Kevin Davis. Thanks for listening and good luck. Bye-bye.